All right, the light says that we are recording, so that means this is officially episode 29 of the show that we call Both Laugh, the Dying Scene Quarantine Chat Show. Uh, we are, I am beyond thrilled to have uh, tonight's guest, uh, one of, for my money, one of the best voices in our little corner of the punk rock world, uh, not to mention one of the best songwriters, that is Josh Caterer, who you probably know from Smoking Popes. Josh, thanks for coming on. This is really Hi. Cool. Thanks for that warm welcome. I appreciate the kind words. The You and I spoke once before over the phone back in the old days. I think it was it was right around when Into the Agony came out, actually. Okay. I was I was in the car in a Target parking lot in suburban Massachusetts at that point. So this feels better. <laughs> yeah, now we can see each other. Yeah. My <laughs> old days, uh, I, I thought you were going to say it was the 90s. And I was going to tell you, there's no way I have any memory. of it. <laughs> No, it was quite literally just like three years ago. <laughs> cool. uh, yeah. So before we the meat and potatoes of the conversation will be um, for folks that don't know, you've got a live uh, solo record coming out, which is a really interesting concept and it's a great album. So we'll talk about that. But one of the, uh, one of the reasons I started doing this show um, at first during quarantine was to talk to people that um, had plans during the year 2020 that either ended up falling by the wayside, had to cancel or postpone indefinitely, or that started doing sort of cool things to get by and to sort of pivot how they operate um, because the world as we know it has changed for the foreseeable future. And so we'll, obviously we know that you were doing some pretty cool things towards later in COVID, but what was, what was on the radar for you personally and for the Smoking Popes professionally. I know you guys had been pretty busy through and after Into the Agony coming out, but what did yeah. 2020 initially look like for you guys? So the the kind of touring cycle for Into the Agony uh, was slowing down. So we didn't have, we didn't have extensive touring planned, but um, the thing that we had to cancel that really killed me was um, we were going to do some some dates on the road with Jawbreaker. Um, wow, we're uh, you know we've we toured with those guys back in the '90s. And, yeah, right. Uh, so we're friends with them. So Adam had called me up and, and personally asked me if if uh, the Popes would go out with them for uh, just a handful of shows, and uh, we were beyond stoked to to say yes to that, and unfortunately had to cancel. That was a bummer. And um, then there was this, what has become like an annual music festival that we uh, started and, and um, do every year, every spring. Well, kind of, you know, I think uh, we do them in May. Did the last one in May, but it's called Live from the Rock Room Fest mm -hmm. at the Bottom Lounge in Chicago. And... Um, We've done a couple of those so far. We were going to do the third annual one. And those events have just been so exhilarating to do. And we've just come to look forward to those with great anticipation. And we're so depressed to have to cancel that. Um, and then there's, we, we kind of do, um, you know, we get offered random like festival shows and things. And then if we, if we get one of those, this is kind of how the Pope's operate is that if we get one of those and it seems like it's worth doing, you know, we'll book 
a show or two on the way out to it and, and back and sort of turn it into a little week long run of shows. And we kind of do a handful of those throughout the year instead of like, you know, let's, let's book, you know, six or eight weeks worth of shows and just go for it. We're kind of, we do it a little more piecemeal. Um, do you miss those days of booking six to eight weeks and getting in a van and just going? Um, no. Yeah. Nobody I, says yes to that question, by the way. <laughs> but I, I miss, I mean, the, the kind of rhythm of, of touring that we have ended up with and, and worked our, our way toward is something that I do miss a lot. I find that if you're on the road for, once you're out there for a couple of weeks, um, you at least I start to feel kind of adrift and uh, a little, I, I start to go to dark places within after I've been on the road for like a few weeks or more. So, you know, I have found that about, about two weeks is, is, uh, the point at which it becomes unhealthy for me to be out there anymore. <laughs> and then I need to go home and sort of replug into the things that provide some kind of foundation for me in life. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I think as the older you get, especially uh, that is, that is pretty, pretty much the most common answer when you talk to folks about touring now, especially if they uh, toured a lot in the nineties or two thousands or whenever is that two weeks seems to be about the limit now. And after that, things kind of get a little squirrely. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to know I'm not alone in that. It's a common human, uh, phenomenon. Yeah. I was, uh, how many shows was Jawbreaker planning on doing? I don't remember if they had officially announced it. I knew that th I know of a couple of other people that had mentioned that they thought Jawbreaker was touring, but, uh, they, they, they do, um, or they were doing something similar to, to uh, the way that when, when we went out with uh, the Descendants a couple years ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. we did like, I think, four shows with them because they'll, they'll do like a, a run of, of four shows and then they'll fly home and they do, you know, they would do a couple of those a month and um that seems, you know, a lot of bands, if you, if you get to the point where you can approach it that way, it's a really good way to do it. And I think that's kind of what Jawbreaker's general approach was. You, you fly into a region and you yeah. do like three or four shows in that region, then you fly home. So that was what it was going to be with like a few shows, maybe four shows. Um, and uh, they all would have been completely memorable experiences, but, you know, hopefully just postponed. Yeah, the, those shows are a big deal. Uh, I, I mean, I think that most people, if they're watching this and they know Smoking Popes and they know Dying Sea, they probably get how big a deal Jawbreaker was. But to have them call you personally and say, hey, do you want to come out and play some shows with us? That was the one band that maybe aside from Fugazi that most people thought, well, they're never going to get back together for the longest time, which they, they said as much for the longest time. So when they finally got back together, it still hasn't quite... Uh, mm -hmm resonated with me so have you seen them since they've been back together i haven't though they i think they did one boston date and uh it sold out essentially before it went on sale yeah um and i don't know enough people to be able to pull strings to try <laughs> to shoot that show i tried uh don't get me wrong but yeah i i wasn't able to finagle my way in well uh 
you know, assuming that shows open back up and, and we get to do that again, you know, they'll, they'll be playing again. I highly recommend going to see them because um, I mean, they've, they've always been just a great band, but um, they're, they're, they're better now. Like yeah. I, I really felt like in the, you know, in the ensuing, like tw- I think 25 years that they took off, there little break <laughs> something happened there where like so, some kind of pent up energy or maturity or whatever but like the way that they were the way that they lock in now and i've seen them twice uh i saw their uh their riot fest show and then the time that we played with them at the aragon in uh 2018 um and both times there was just like a cohesiveness um and a, and a power to their live performance that wasn't um, that wasn't there. And that's not to say that they weren't good back in the nineties, but there's definitely, it's like, a, there's, it's a richer experience <laughs> to see yeah. that they're definitely a band you should see live. Yeah. And it, that makes me feel like they did it for the right reasons. You know, they got back together and started playing shows for the right reasons. They're right. not just, they're not just phoning it in. Right, because if they were just, if it was just a paycheck, you'd be able to see that, like, there would be kind of a vacancy to, to you know, some yeah. or all of them. But no, they're just, they're plugged into it and, like, loving it. You can tell there's this, uh, and I can even relate to that. I mean, the Popes took several years off sure. and came back, and I remember that feeling of, like, ah, this is like, I, I, I. <laughs> I didn't even realize how much I missed this. Like yeah. this is this is beautiful, you know. Like like you get on stage and you're like, "Hello, old friend." I have, yeah. you, you know. So, and, I think and that's even how too, we're all gonna feel once we start playing shows again, well, right? And, and even to a lesser extent, I mean, having um, Mike Fellamley back in the band was that sort of another. Uh, I, obviously, you had been reformed as a band with a few different drummers for yeah. quite a while, but having him back in the band i think we talked last time about even that in and of itself being like another kickstart like it was it was the four old guys back in the band together yeah old guys being a (laughs) probably not the best term to use (laughs) i knew what you meant by that right four four old friends the og yeah the originals the originals yeah that that's definitely the case and i mean we've had nothing but great drummers in the band i've i've loved playing with all of them and they've all brought something awesome to the, the table. Um, but, you know, if you change drummers, it changes the, the personality of your band. It sort of changes your, the, the musical voice of the band, you know, like the, the, the thing which is like, uh, the, the that's greater than the sum of its parts it's like what the identity of the collective uh is of the band and you you know you just there was there was something about that that moment we hadn't played music with mike for for years and then you know the three of us went over to his uh house and he had like a practice space set up in his basement we brought our gear set it up and as soon as we launch into um, the first song, 
we get like into the first verse of it and like the rest of us just look at each other and there it was <laughs> just with our eyes we were just saying to each other like we're we're back yeah like we haven't really we haven't really been the smoking popes for several years we've been like a version of like as close to the smoking popes as you could get is what we were for several years and it reminds me of uh a quote that I heard from Iggy Pop in an interview where he's, because, you know, for, for years and years, he was just, he, he was playing with like a pickup band, you yeah. know? But once he got back uh, with the Ashton brothers and started playing with them, it's, the quote was something like, as soon as I started playing with the Ashton brothers again, uh, I realized that I had been performing in a Stooges cover band for the last 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I could sort of relate to that yeah that that makes sense we were we were the world's greatest smoking popes cover <laughs> band until we got mike back in the band yeah i don't i think that people that maybe are not necessarily musically inclined that might like the music but that aren't uh musicians don't necessarily understand what it means to plug a drummer into a band uh, for most bands, the drummer is not the biggest personality. I guess maybe you could argue nowadays in Blink-182, but uh, for most bands, the drummer isn't the thing that you notice the most, except that I think if you're a musician, plugging a drummer in is a huge deal. And I can- I think to... any any musician would understand that. Yeah. Um, the, the, the extent to which a drummer can define the, the tone of a band is they're, they're arguably the most important sure. member of the band when it comes to like, what is that musical voice? What is the feel, the real, the real vibe of the music going to be? I, I remember having a few lengthy conversations with a couple of the Bouncing Souls guys after they added George from Hot Water Music, who mm -hmm. was their first choice to replace Mike, their old drummer. Um, yeah. And then sort of George realizing that George is a phenomenal drummer, but George didn't play Bouncing Souls kind of music. So him having to go through this whole thing about, do I try to change songs to make them the way that I play drums? Or do I try to play the Bouncing Soul and sort of relearn how to play my instrument? And he has said that there's some songs that just like, that's the way they go now, because that's the way I'm going to play them. But then he has tried to tailor his playing to a Bouncing Souls sound. And I don't know that people necessarily think along those terms, if you are joe q public uh that is a music fan you know what i mean right yeah you're probably right but still um a, a a listener or an audience member at a show whether they know the reason for it or not they'll be able to pick up on sure. you know if the band is is you know really good or just okay or missing something or, or yeah. something you know they, they might not be able to identify the thing that makes a performance great or a, a performance feel inspired um but it could be something that you know like that like the the presence of the, the way the drummer is playing is making all the other musicians feel like like we're locked in and um you know there's a lot of uh, interesting dynamics. Like I think about that with, with uh, you know, as, as, as a film lover, mm. um, 
I like to like, you know, watch like special features on DVDs and things or yeah, yeah. making of documentaries and, or listen to podcasts about, you know, things that kind of uh, open the curtain on like what's going on behind the scenes. And you, you discover that, um, you know, there are so many moving parts and it's such a collaborative thing. And a band is, is really like that. Um, these little things that different, different people that are involved can bring to it um, that become essential parts of, of that thing. But, you know, people just, a lot of people go, go to a movie and, and you just, you're just like, oh, that's a good movie or it's, I liked it or I didn't like it. And then you don't necessarily yeah. analyze it. But this is the, the curse of the, uh, the artistic creative people is that you uh, relentlessly pick apart everything that you're seeing. And I don't know. With, it, with movies, I'm able to just turn that part of my brain off, suspend disbelief. Like I, I know what I like in a movie and that's cool. With music, I could incessantly watch nothing but music documentaries all the time about making of albums I've never heard before or don't care about necessarily, but just to know uh, what went into the making of an album, a Paul Simon album. I'm not a huge, I get Paul Simon. I'm not a huge fan, but there was a great documentary on PBS not too long ago about the making of the Graceland album or the 25th anniversary of the Graceland album. And yeah. I think I've seen it twice now because it, it's just fascinating. The minutia behind how to make an album and what you're uh, putting into, especially an album like that. Uh, I could watch that. I could watch yeah. exclusively that. Where, where can I find that? It, I know it was on PBS. So yeah. I think it was, I don't know who actually made it. I think it's part of a series uh, where they go, it's like behind the album, basically. I think they've done one or two on like an old Nirvana album. Um, yeah. I think maybe Damn the Torpedoes, there was one on. I I believe that they were filmed. God, they're not recent, uh, but but they have aired recently on PBS sort of late at night. Um, but I'll, yeah, I'll try to try to look up where I saw them. I remember Years ago, I, I heard part of an interview with Paul Simon. Um, might have been on, on Fresh Air or something. He was mm. on Fresh Air. And uh, he was talking about the Graceland record. And he was talking about how the success of that record, because he had used um, like African vocalists and musicians on there. And it sort of helped foster the popularity of what came to be known as world music. Yeah. And... Uh, he was talking about how that that kind of success and then the world music thing tied into bringing um, some attention to the uh, apartheid situation over there and drawing like global attention to that. And uh, he's, he's talking about this and then he stops and he goes, I'm sorry, I know it sounds kind of self-aggrandizing for, for me to be talking about this, but it's just my honest observation about what happened when that album came. <laughs> you know? I just thought that was so awesome, right? Because I'm like, yeah, what what do you do when you're Paul Simon, right? When like those things actually happen, you release an album and it has like an impact on the entire <laughs> world, right? Right. Like, are you allowed to sit around and talk about that, or yeah. do you have to let everybody else talk about how important? Yeah, yeah. Right. Is, right. Know? Hey. God bless him for actually talking about it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. for acknowledging that it was kind of weird for him to be talking about. Yeah. Right. Well, 
Like he seems like about as down to earth as you can be if you're Paul Simon. Yeah, right. Uh, my daughter referenced Paul Simon. It didn't, my daughter's 13 and their music artist of the day for music class was Simon and Garfunkel. So she was talking about Simon and Garfunkel at dinner and it was, it's just a weird, like she has never talked about music like that before. And she actually referenced, I said that I was more of a fan of Paul Simon's solo career than Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, and she said, what about the music he did with, was it Ladysmith Black Mombaza? And she had that like at her fingertips. I said, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. Like, cause I, he, uh, he's not on TikTok, so I had no idea. <laughs> no, he's not. Um, I I share your opinion though. Uh, I I like his solo stuff better, and and that's not to say that I don't like Simon and Garfunkel. I, it's obviously brilliant stuff. It's just pretty moody. Like yeah, you really, you really have to be. It has to be raining outside. Yeah, right. On a Simon and Garfunkel, record. right? But. Um, you know, and even like his more, he keeps making albums and like right. his his recent stuff over the last couple of decades, like there's always very interesting moments. And, and like, you can, you can see that um, he's, he's really engaged in the songwriting process as much as ever. He's, he's he'll still just have like a brilliant, take on, on the lyrics of a song and he seems to be inspired still yeah. which is which is inspiring to me i loved any any artist who keeps yeah. going you know well into their later years like it just uh i find that somehow comforting you know because you there are points where you worry like you know once you hit 40 yeah you know, you start wrestling with like, oh, am I relevant anymore? Yeah, <laughs> and, it, and it's just comforting to see that a guy like Paul Simon isn't sitting there worrying about whether he's relevant or not. Yeah, he's right. Trying to write the best, most interesting and inspired songs he possibly can. And, and I'm sure. There, and then maybe you know, maybe his his stuff isn't going to number one on the charts anymore. Right. But like, who cares? Right. You know. It's, Paul Simon fans are going to buy Paul Simon albums. Right. And um, he's creating things that, that uh, you know, you make an album, it's out there in the world and people, it, it can have whatever effect on other humans that it needs to have, you know, and that's sort right. of why we're doing this. Right. So uh, I guess talking about music, good segue to, let's talk about uh, the hideout sessions. So I guess yeah. first and foremost, for folks that don't know, it's a live solo album that you recorded at essentially an empty bar in Chicago. Yeah. Right? To, to boil it down to its to its core elements. But if you can, I've, I've read a little bit about The Hideout. I have never been to Chicago, so I don't know it personally. Oh. But if you can sort of at first explain sort of The Hideout and what it is, it's got a cool history or backstory to it. It does. I don't know the whole backstory to it. I just know that I love seeing shows there and I've played a few shows there that I have loved. And it's a, there is something especially intimate about the vibe in the hideout. It's sort of a, I don't know what their capacity, I, I would guess maybe like 150 capacity room. So it's kind of mm -hmm. just uh, the, the, the dimensions of the room are such that you feel pretty close to anybody that's in the room if mm -hmm. crowd in there. Um, and it's, it's lit 
in kind of a fun, warm way with all these like Christmas lights on the ceiling. So it's just very, um, I don't know. It's the kind of place that you, you kind of fall in love with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel yeah. like a lot of people in Chicago have that kind of relationship with the hideout. So it seemed like a, a good place to do this also um, because as soon as the, um, as soon as everything shut down last year from, from COVID, um, the hideout is a club that pretty quickly uh, adapted to that situation and started to develop an online presence of virtual performances. Um, they, they figured out just how to, how to, you know, present that on their, on their website and to mm -hmm. do it, uh, safely. I mean, when, when we ended up playing there, you know, they, they took our temperatures coming in and, and we're very careful to keep everybody away from each other in there so that we were, we were safe. And, but they, they, uh, quickly, uh, sort of seemed to, you know, set the example in Chicago of like, okay, if we're switching to an online thing now, here's kind of how you do it. And they started to have regular shows. And um, I just was like, that's so cool. I want to, I want to do one of those. Yeah. Um, but it also occurred to me that it would be, uh, it would be a good opportunity since, you know, everything that the Pope's had scheduled got canceled and it's, these days it's a little harder to get uh, the popes all together because uh, you know our drummer moved out of state and so it's it's just not easy to uh, to get everybody in the same place and uh, and and work on anything or practice anything these days um, I decided well why don't I just I just make it a solo thing and maybe uh, it would give me an opportunity to play with with some musicians who I don't normally get to play with yeah and uh and then i thought of a these couple of guys who who i've known for years and whose work i admire but i've not never actually played in a band with either of these guys as john perrin who plays drums for nrbq but he also uh played in a band called the love shots that the popes had played with okay. a few times and and then uh I thought for, for bass guitar, I would ask John San Juan who plays in the Hush Drops and does some solo stuff. And uh, he's, he, he usually, you know, sort of uh, functions as a, as a singer, guitar player, and he's brilliant at both of those things. But I knew he was a multi-instrumentalist and could play anything. Yeah. Well, I asked him to do bass on this. And uh, we also hadn't played together before. Um, so, so we had to, those two had never played together with each other before together once in a Beatles cover band. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just for one set. And they That's told funny. that they, they didn't even rehearse for that set. They both had to just get on stage and they both have an extensive knowledge of uh, Beatles songs. So they just picked up instruments. It was a plug and play situation. That's they great. made music together that once. Um, but um they sound like they've been playing together for decades. There, there's just this kind of synergy to their playing where they really locked in together and, and really brought a lot of uh, creativity and inspiration to the, to the arrangements of these songs. And so there, there was, 
for this album, there was these, these a few ideas that were all coming together at once. One was I wanted to play at the hideout. Two is I wanted to play with these two guys. Yeah. And three is that I wanted to continue to explore this idea that the popes had started exploring back in whatever year it was when we did the album, The Party's Over, mm-hmm. which was, uh, it's an album of covers, but um, mostly covers from the, um, from the kind of Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland era of songwriting. Sure. Um, we wanted to kind of reinterpret those songs with our own, with our own style and, and, and uh, cause you know, I've always been kind of uh, in love with the idea of being interpreters of songs, you know, cause like some of my favorite music is, is music that is made by people who didn't write it. You know, like right. I'm a huge, I'm a huge Frank Sinatra fan. He never wrote his own songs, you right. know, he was interpreting and all these great artists of that era uh, you know, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. Elvis. Elvis yeah, Elvis too. Yeah. Like, uh, I was thinking more of the the slightly earlier, like crooner era, yeah, yeah. Nat King Cole and people like that. Like, they're not writing their own songs, but they're they're bringing so much personality to, to what they're doing that they make the song their own, even if it's something that's, you know, you can think of 10 versions of that song that other people have done. When Nat King Cole does it, like, it's his yeah yeah, right and uh so i i thought well let's that that was the inspiration behind the party's over but i thought like there's there's so much great music from that era you you could make many albums of that kind of stuff so um i wanted to continue to do that so the, the the content of this album is i mean there's 10 songs on the album six of them are reinterpreted versions of old cover songs like we do uh uh, my funny Valentine and I only have eyes for you and what kind of fool am I like these songs that were standards back in the 40s 50s 60s um, and then the other four songs on the album are reinterpreted versions of Smoking Pope songs because I thought it would be cool to kind of take s- some of the songs that I had written and and um, treat them like cover songs and mm-hmm. it might show the continuity between the songs that inspired my songwriting and the song, the, the songs that I actually wrote out of it. Like for example, um, we do a, a version of, of Need You Around on the album that's, that's totally different and brings out a different yeah, yeah, yeah. component from the song. But we also do the song, What Kind of Fool Am I is, is sort of like, I would say that Need You Around is loosely based on the song, What Kind of Fool Am I? Um, the, the melody of it is if, if, like, if you compare the two uh, melodies, yeah. you'll see that Need You Around sort of feels like a modern version of What Kind of Fool Am I? Interesting. And so I wanted to have both those songs on the album so that you could see that they live in the same neighborhood. Yeah, I got the sense in listening to it that uh, in some ways, the the songs that are the traditional covers, um, they they almost sound more like Smoking Pope songs than the Smoking Pope songs that you reimagined. Because right. the the Smoking Pope songs, again, most people haven't heard it yet. Are they're 
they're played slower. There might be a different key involved in like Megan. Uh, and they don't sound like smoking Pope songs, but the other six kind of did like, it makes a little more sense that way. So that's a really interesting way to, to put the album together yeah, or, or to I, sort of conceptualize. I was, was kind of hoping that for, for people that like the smoking Popes, it, it would, as you said, contextualize it. It would, it would put our, our body of work in in the context of of the music that it's it was always kind of striving to be yeah so and there's a thing that uh if you're a fan of mid 90s punk rock then you're certainly not uh is not foreign to you that uh punk rock bands did a lot of covers of older songs whether it was 80s songs or 60s songs or whatever um but you do them differently that some of them are just sort of boilerplate 90s punk rock beat but we'll reinterpret uh yeah. an adam ant song or whatever from the 80s right but oh. you sort of do them differently there maybe it's a musicianship level thing um but uh, you sort of do them differently so they don't sound like they're pop punk songs if that makes sense right. like you give them the real uh the real i think interpretation that they deserve frankly thanks i'm so happy with the way the album has turned out. I really, I mean, I'm proud of all the stuff that Popes have done and other projects I've been involved in. I'm not trying to denigrate any of my own material, but I would say that this particular album is like very dear to my heart. I feel like it's almost the culmination of, uh, of uh, different like musical avenues that were being explored. They, they sort of, come together on this project and um and the guys that i'm playing with are so musically literate mm. and inspired by such a variety of of styles um i think that they together they they have like the 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 power of a of a of a pop punk trio but they also have the diversity of like a jazz combo yeah yeah there is something a little bit jazzy um, about the exploratory nature of their playing. And I, it, it's just exciting to, for me to play with them. And I think that excitement comes through in the record. So I'm glad you like it. That, that John Perrin knows his way around a drum kit. He certainly wow. does. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, I, I know of NRBQ. I'm certainly not well-versed in the NRBQ catalog, but that guy can play the drums. <laughs> really can. It's it's inspiring to play with him. I think one of my favorite moments on the album um, is during, is that I only have eyes for you. There's, his drums are just sort of otherworldly in that song. And then there's a few, uh, I've mentioned before that I think you're one of my favorite voices in punk rock, but uh, for those that don't know, Josh Caterer knows his way around, around a guitar. <laughs> there's a few <laughs> solos in that song that... That people might not necessarily expect coming from a uh, from Josh Caterer, if that makes sense. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, I don't know if, if people who are are really fans of the genre of like '90s pop punk. I don't know if in general they love guitar solos. So I've always yeah, there haven't been many of them. <laughs> I, I've always been a little self-conscious about the amount of guitar soloing that the Popes do, and I can't tell if you know half our audience is just sort of 
politely enduring the solos to get the notes, <laughs> but we go ahead and solo anyway. But this is a this is a project where everybody kind of stretches out, um, it, and it feels more. You know, if I keep describing it as jazz too much, it's going to give people the wrong. <laughs> No, music. it is not a jazz record, folks. It's not a jazz <laughs> record at all. But I no. do, I do feel like the, um, the kind of improv and uh, kind of showmanship that everybody is displaying on their instruments and and um, and all that is feels a little bit like 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 jazzy to me, at, in the sense that it's like musicians who are. Um, who are really into the craft of what they're doing and are excited about um, seeing what they can bring to all these little moments in the song. You know, when you listen to jazz music, if it's good, you know, you'll, you'll hear like all these guys that are, they're all plugged into the hole. And so yeah. they're, they're serving the, the, the overall song, but they're also like always like sprinkling some, some Mrs. Dash on like, every <laughs> moment of the song, you know? Right. And I, I feel a, like the, like John and John are, are doing that constantly in very tasteful ways throughout this whole project. And I just, I love it. How much rehearsal time did you guys have? Cause you went into this concept knowing not just that you were going to play a show but that you were going to record a live album, correct? Like that was yeah, sort that of the point, which is, a, which is that was the plan from the beginning which is a high bar for a band that's never played together before yeah and um man i forget what the number is of days that we had from the time that we had our first rehearsal it was like 40 something days from the time of our first rehearsal to the time of the recording and we uh pretty much practiced once a week I think towards the end, we might've done twice a week, but like it was a pretty con concentrated amount of time, basically a month and a half. Um, and the first, the first few sessions were um, trying to see what songs we wanted to do. And I would, I would show up with different ideas. Uh, actually, I, I, made, I, I made demos just on my phone of my, myself playing acoustic guitar through these songs sent them to the guys and then we would show up and just try to plow through them and see how they felt mm. sometimes you get an idea about what's going to work but until you try it with the band you don't know yeah. so there was there was a couple of songs that i was convinced were going to be great um but we just could not find an arrangement that felt like it totally clicked um and so, I don't know, we might keep working on those and save them for the next project. But we had to whittle through, like, you, you play something a few different ways. You can land on a good, solid arrangement. Like, all right, that one's, that one's in. And then we, we spent probably the first two or three rehearsals just doing that. And from there, just, like, just playing through them and tightening them up. And you, you're going through this process of, like, uh, learning the arrangement to the point where you don't have to think about the arrangement anymore because you know where the song is going and now you can live in it and try to inhabit those moments and, and, and sprinkle that seasoning on all the different parts of it. But it takes a while to get there, but we did, okay. you know, once we have the date 
you know, I think we started our first rehearsal and then within a week after that, I think I had, uh, I had locked in the date at the hideout and it turned out it was just, it's like 40 some days away. And everybody was like, wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We've got 40, 40 days here to like, you know, it's like sort of like a couch to marathon. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, so that was pretty exhilarating. Did in the, um, demos that you gave them, did you sort of indicate to them like what kind of an arrangement or what kind of a feel you wanted for each song or did a lot of that come out of just being together? I did, but like that changed once I started playing with them. My original thought for it was that the whole project was going to be fairly, uh, mellow it was going to have just sort of a lighter touch to it um but like as you know from the first rehearsal we just all everybody was just digging in harder and that that felt right it was just obvious that that was that's the way that this combo of musicians is best able to express themselves is with more more energy so i just had to adjust my expectations wanting to keep it lighter was that is that sort of by design to sort of keep it away from being i don't want to say too much of a pope's clone because it's not a pope's album but if an album is too aggressive then maybe it takes on the same feel for people is that why you kind of wanted to have a different tone to it or uh yeah i guess i <laughs> i didn't i i knew i just knew that i didn't want it to be um I didn't want it to be popesy in its arrangements um, because if I was going to be popesy in the arrangements, I'll just play the Pope. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> this, this by definition had to be something else. Right. Um, but I, I think my idea that it was going to be lighter might've been based on my guess as to what these guys were going to bring to the table. I, I had, you know, seen them playing different kinds of music and like you know like john with nrbq it's that that's not they're not a really aggressive hard rock band right um and i had seen him play also with uh a band around town uh called the western elstons which is like uh kind of a, a swing country band where he was playing kind of light yeah um so i just thought well maybe that's how this is gonna go so that was my guess yeah but then once we got into it everybody was just ready to rock (laughs) (laughs) and so i was like all right let's let's just go for it then and rock so can you describe the experience then in recording a live album in front of nobody uh especially because it's an energetic album uh like i mentioned I only have eyes for you that song kind of finishes big and the, like I said there's a lot of guitar work going on and the drums are big and and then it's like the song's over and then it's crickets where that would normally be a thing where you're kind of I'm assuming building off the energy you get from the crowd and vice versa and then you kind of build up to this big crescendo and then it's okay on to what kind of fool am I yeah <laughs> yeah it was it was important to uh to get over that pretty quickly, any any need 
for an audience response because uh, you really weren't going to get it. <laughs> right. But I, I, I think, you know, I think I speak for all three of us when I say that, like, we, we went into this thinking of it more in terms of making a record than, we, than in terms of playing a show. Like we were, we were, um, yes, we were presenting it as a virtual show that people could watch, but we, we were thinking of it more as people are going to watch us make a record. Okay. Um, so even though there was, there was a, there was a little bit of like, you know, kind of expressing ourselves the way that we would at a show moving around a little bit, but there was less of that, at least for me, mm. um, you know, if I was playing a, a show to an audience, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be as concerned about playing every note correctly. I would be more concerned about sort of uh, connecting with the people that were in front of me and having like kind of a, this, this exchange of energy that happens. And you give myself a margin to, to play a certain number of uh, erroneous notes during a song. But for this, I was like, no, I got to play this right. Yeah. Um, because I don't want to have to go back in and punch in anything in the studio i want i want it to all be legit like one complete take without any fixes so i was a little more inhibited and I'm, i look i look back at the video and i think it looks great as far as the the, the way the camera work was and and um you know we we put suits on so i was like oh i i kind of like that aspect yeah, yeah. Of it. makes yeah. us look a little more like we're we're trying, <laughs> uh, but I also am noticing that my physical posture, I think, is a little more contained than it would be during a normal performance. And even, you know, when we, I assume that the day will come when this trio of musicians will play live shows in front of an audience uh, and play that material. And I think that our physical performance, or at least mine, will be more, will be different. It will be more expressive and, and less uh you know contained because i mean you've recorded i it's my understanding at least the popes have recorded live at least in the studio you may not necessarily record vocals or whatever all at the same time but you can at least record uh the music together but trying to do vocals on top of that is a different right. is a different animal yeah you always overdub the vocals later and you overdub the guitar solos later yeah. So to have to do those things um, in one take and have it all come together, um, it was it, we we felt the pressure of that. I certainly felt the pressure of that. Mm -hmm. um, so it was it was exhilarating, <laughs> you know, the whole thing. <laughs> sure. it was like we walked in there going, "Why did we do this to ourselves? You know, why didn't we just we could book studio time and just go in and make a record? We're not right. feeling any of this pressure, but like." Um, part of the reason why we did it that way, um, and there was a, there was a handful of reasons, but one of them is that we, we wanted to, um, when we made that record, I hadn't yet figured out, uh, what label was going to put it out. So, um, I had to, we basically had to fund the, the, the recording ourselves. So it yeah. like. You know, it was a way to, if we go into a club, like we don't have to pay for studio time. And if we make some money off of the virtual show, the ticket sales for that, you know, that'll help pay for the mixing of the album. So that was the idea there, but it, 
but it also served the purpose of turning the album into this uh, this this cool event. Like there's now there's a story kind of associated yeah. with the making of the album that I wouldn't I wouldn't trade for anything now. Yeah, I, I mean, I want to I want to do another one. Really? That's yeah. cool. I kind of want to combine it when this album comes out, which is going to be in late March. Sometime after that, maybe in April, I want to do like a release show. Yeah. Um, that we also record and turn into another one of these albums. That, I think we've got at least one more full length album of this kind of material to go. Before that's an interesting out. idea to record your album release show, but not to play the album that your album releasing to record an entire another show. That's right. great. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes. I'm I mean, working that, on it. There's a lot of other bands, obviously, that have had to pivot to doing live streams, and and that's kind of the thing now, and and that's good. And there's some that I know that have put out live albums that they that came from material recorded at their live streams or whatever, but not anybody that I know of otherwise that went into their live stream say, "This is our ten song set. We're going to turn this into an album." That's I don't know of anybody else that's done it that way. Yeah, I don't know of of anybody either. <laughs> it, it came out really great. Now you you can definitely tell it is a, a little jarring sometimes to know that it's a live album and to expect the crowd noise afterwards after yeah. a solo or even after a song, the, the sort of compulsory. Uh, Actually, I mean, I, I can think of an example of it that that I thought of even last summer when we were dreaming this idea up. I, I remembered this album that Joe Jackson put out uh, in the late 80s called Big World. Okay. Which he recorded, I can't remember the venue, but I know he recorded it at a club in New York City. And um, he had, he allowed uh, a kind of a limited audience in there. Because um, I remember reading an article about it and people could come in, but there were like cards on the tables that told you that you had to remain absolutely silent and you not only couldn't you clap after the songs, but there was no coughing or talking or anything. You just had to remain completely silent. Yeah. And so then, but he, so he recorded that album on stage and the songs on that album are, you know, each song is one complete take, but he would do multiple takes of a yeah, song. Yeah. He got yeah. one. That That's not fair. Just right. <laughs> but, but still what you're hearing is a, a complete take of a song that right. was performed on stage in a club in, you know, with some people in the room. But so I think from his point of view and from his band's point of view, it gave them that that energized kind of like semi-live feel. But since there's no crowd noise, um, you get the the clarity in the recording that is is enjoyable, more enjoyable to listen to. I like it. You know, I let's be honest. Like live albums are not the best no. to listen to. I mean, there's a couple exceptions to that. Uh, Cheap Trick at Budokan, you know, and right. a couple other ones are like really good. But you'd really rather be listening to a studio album because it just sounds better. And particularly on vinyl too, I will say. Like I, I have a fairly extensive vinyl collection, and I might have two live albums and i probably don't even listen to them because a lot of times they're triple albums or quadruple albums and who's got the time for that really right <laughs> like I, right exactly really I, I don't have time to sit down and 
listen to two songs and then flip it over and listen to two songs and flip it over. Like, no, thanks. <laughs> Digitally, maybe. Too much work. The, yeah, exactly. So this is nice. 10 songs. It's short and sweet. Although now that I think about it, the Joe Jackson thing, that's got to be a little jarring for the musicians too, because they're playing in a room full of people. So you expect that there's going to be some audience feedback and then to have nothing that's almost got to do something else to you mentally while you're performing. It's, it's one thing to perform in a club with few people in it. That's kind of what, how punk rock people cut their teeth. Right. But, but to, perform in a room full of people that have to maintain silent it's like being at the dmv for goodness sake <laughs> right but i don't know I, I i also think what a special experience for the people that got to be there sure when that album comes out and you're listening to the finished product and you're like you know you you can't hear me but i was i was in the room yeah and uh instead of having to just imagine anytime you listen to an album, like you sort of imagine what that world would have been like to be in it, you know? Um, but that those people get to say, no, I know exactly what it felt like yeah. in the room when that album was made. Right. It's kind of cool. Um, album's out when March 26th. Do I March have that 26th. right? Yeah. Uh, the first single, I think, is uh, coming out in early March, like March 5th or something. Okay. Yeah. We're gonna we're releasing the the video from the live stream uh, for the song "Need You Around," and so that'll be March fifth. But the full album comes on the twenty sixth. That's an interesting choice because obviously it's probably the song that people know the best from you, and it doesn't sound anything like they are expecting. So if they didn't see the live stream, and I'm one of those people who didn't, it was on my wife's birthday, so I couldn't really do that. <laughs> um, but it, if they if they weren't there for the live stream, then this is, it's going to be an interesting, uh, it's an interesting feel for them. So that's a good song to lead with, I think. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, it seemed like it It was gonna, I, I uh, traditionally have been really bad at uh, picking singles for first songs. I mean, for, for off of albums and Need You Around wouldn't have been my choice for the album Born to Quit. Mm. Um, I wanted to go with like Rubella. Yeah. It just seemed like Need You Around was an odd choice because it starts with drums and then there's instrumental. The singing doesn't even start until you're into the song for over a minute before there's any singing. And there's not really a chorus. <laughs> right. And, uh, but that that single was chosen for us because uh, Q101 just started playing it. They heard the record and picked that song and just put it in heavy rotation. <laughs> and it turned out to be the right choice. Yeah, right. It right. did fairly well, but I just decided. And then, you know, subsequently, whenever I try to, identify what the single off an album is going to be like i'm just wrong i'm just wrong about it <laughs> so um in this case it just seemed like um like my gut was telling me to pick you know something like i only have eyes for you or you know one of the covers like uh uh what kind of fool am i just like i don't know that's one of my favorite ones on the record i just i love the vibe of that song yeah, yeah. um but then I just decided, 
why don't I, uh, why don't I trust the program director from Q101 <laughs> to pick the single off of this album like right. he did off of that album back in 1995? Right. And we'll just go with that. Right. Since it worked the first time, maybe it'll work again. Right. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's a great idea. Um, thanks for doing this. I don't want to take up too much of your evening and we're at close to an hour now. So yeah. I'm trying to be mindful of that. But thanks for doing this. This is It's a great album. It's out uh, March 26th on Pravda Records. Uh, do I have that right? Yes, Pravda. Uh, yeah, it's, people should pick it up. It's really cool. Whether, whether or not you're a Pope's fan, it's a really cool album. I appreciate your enthusiasm about it. And thanks. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you. Like, this, you know, it's been a good interview. And as a wannabe guitar nerd, I love your Coronado too. That's, that's one of my favorite guitars to see somebody play. And I've gotten to take pictures of you playing it a few times. It's like, nobody plays a Coronado. Nobody in punk rock plays a Coronado. And that's, it just has such a cool sound. Somewhere I saw there's a picture of, of Elvis with a Coronado, the same kind of sunburst Coronado and he's holding it up. He like played it in uh, in one of his movies. I think, yeah, that sounds right. And I don't think he put it down for the whole movie because he didn't never knew what to do with his hands. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, I actually, I bought that guitar. I started maybe five or six years ago playing with a with a blues band called yeah. the Mud Band, and we sure. put out an album together, and it was kind of sort of a fun, a fun side project kind of a thing that where I was able to explore that but I, that's when I decided well I've got to get a, a sort of bluesier looking guitar yeah well so I started looking at like semi hollow body guitars and you know kind of BB King-esque kind of guitars but I played a bunch of them but then when I stumbled across the Coronado it was more it was more Elvis than it was BB King but it just I just love the way it played and then I fell in love with the guitar so much. I started using it as my, as my Pope's guitar and it has just become, it has become my instrument. Yeah. No, Unexpectedly, I thought it would be this little novelty I had on the side, but it has become my main instrument. And, you know, you have to be one with your ax. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think if you can find a Coronado that you're not fighting against uh, because of the hollow nature of it, then, then it's the one. So. Oh Yeah. It's, it's a very solid guitar. It stays in tune incredibly well. Interesting. You know, it's not Interesting. a delicate instrument. It's like big and heavy and you can beat on it and it'll stay in tune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you find yourself having to fight? Uh, is it a full hollow or is it semi-hollow? I think the early, early Coronados were full hollow. Yeah. no. And then I think uh, they started to make them like center block or whatever. It's got a center block in it, so it doesn't squeal too much. Yeah. I, I love it. And every time I get to see pictures of it, even it's like, Ooh, that's a pretty guitar. <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, thanks for doing this. I, I appreciate it. And hopefully, uh, hopefully 2021 is the year we get to see you back out on the road. Who knows? I've been vaccinated. So I'm, I'm just sitting waiting. Oh. I'm like, Oh, come on. Let's... I work in healthcare as okay. by day. Um, okay. So I'm lucky enough to have been fully vaccinated at this point. I'm like, all right, I can be first. I can be in the photo pit of the shows. Let's go. Nice. I know. I was I was naturally vaccinated because I had COVID a couple months ago. How did that experience go was, for you? Did it, it was an entirely miserable experience? Really? Yeah. And it was uh there were moments, particularly during the second week, where I thought I might should go to the hospital because 
I had this fever that uh, was up in the 103.5 area and I just couldn't get it to come down. I was just yeah. taking Tylenol and stuff and it just wouldn't come down. And um, I got a little worried. Yeah. I just felt like I had been hit by a truck, like body aches, every joint in my body, just aching, headache, uh, sinuses were killing me, nauseous, exhausted, fever chills, like just all of it, just terrible. Yeah. And, um, but I have a friend uh, in a band called the Bull Weevils. Dar Dr. Daryl was on an earlier version of this show. Dr. Daryl. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, he's an ER doctor. And uh, so when it got, when my fever got up there and I got worried, I, I texted Daryl and I was like, man, what should I do? Am I supposed to go in? And he kind of like gave me some, some direction as to, uh, you know, different over-the-counter things that I could try that would help me that turned out to be very helpful besides what I was what I was taking but he also um he 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 put my mind at ease um right off the bat because I said should I go into the hospital and he said well how's your breathing like our, he he asked if I was experiencing air hunger which is sort of a terrifying term, but I knew what he meant by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And I said, no. I mean, uh, I have a little bit of a cough if I try to breathe deeply, but other than that, um, uh, I'm no air hunger. So he's like, well, you don't have to go in then because like, that's what you would go in for. Mm -hmm. The fever, uh, he's like, the fever can be hard to control, but that's just part of the deal. Um, I would only worry, I would only go in if, if you're really having trouble breathing. But like, here's some other stuff we can try to get that fever down and get you feeling better. And, you know, he said, just take Dramamine for the nausea. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Dramamine. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it worked. You know, yeah. I have not actually ever taken Dramamine before, but uh, it helped. And then I could actually eat a little bit because I didn't eat for a few days there. How long well, were you out of commission for? Um, I know they said it was like, you're supposed to be from the day... I think from the day of the diagnosis until it's supposed to be like 10 days. Yeah. Um, but that was only the case if you, if you've been fever free for 24 hours, but when I got to the 10th day, I still had a bit of a fever. I was up at like, you know, a hundred. So it took me another couple of days. I think it was like day 12. I could actually come out of quarantine. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was no fun, man. But how do you feel now? I mean, how long did it take even after that to have the sort of post-acute stuff before that went away? Yeah. A um, couple of lingering symptoms. Um, most of the body aches went away, but now I, I have like pain in my hips that I never had before. Interesting. Just like constantly that has persisted ever ever since i just have like hip issues now huh. which is a little weird it's a weird side effect yeah yeah um and then for for like a good two or three weeks after i was out of quarantine i felt really weird emotionally and mentally like people talk about there being like a brain fog yeah 
it was a brain fog. Like it was, it was a little harder for me to, to uh, finish sentences and things, but also like emotionally, I was like a raw nerve. Like I would cry a lot. Mm. Um, you know, and I'm not usually like a, a big crier. Yeah. But like I was almost every day I was, something would bring me to tears. I was just like in a really weird place emotionally. And it took, it took me weeks to, to get back to where I felt grounded. Wow. I, you know, I've, I've seen articles about that where people, um, you know, months after yeah. COVID, they're having like anxiety and depression disorders that they never had before that they have to deal with. So like, we still don't know the extent of long-term effects of this strange disease, you know, right. because it affects your brain. That's what turns off your taste and smell is like right. you your actual brain and messes right. with you. So that's scary. Yeah, that part is horrifying to me. <laughs> as, I mean, as somebody who has had long issues since I was 10 anyway, that part of it, like I had the lingering anxiety from it, but knowing the other, uh, especially the sort of brain stuff, that made me ultra paranoid of putting myself near it. Not yeah. to the extent that I never left my house, but it was pretty much just grocery store and work. So what happens with the, with the vaccine? Did you have any like mild side effects from that? Uh, first shot, I got the Moderna one. First shot was a piece of cake. It felt even, I get the flu shot every year and it, was, it wasn't even as bad as a flu shot. And even in terms of arm pain, the second one, about 11 hours after I got it. So essentially the middle of the night, I started with the, sh the shakes, like cold sweats and shakes. And then I was super hot. I never really had a fever. I mean, they don't consider 99 a fever. I kind of, it was like elevated temperature a little bit, but for a good 24 hours, it was just uh, alternating between hot sweats, cold sweats, hot and body aches. Like my back hurt, my hips hurt, my knees hurt. Um, and then I went to sleep that night. I woke up fine the following day so it was quite literally 24 hours starting about 12 hours after i got it yeah man that, it sounds, sounds good sounds like what you what you experienced was like a a very micro version of of yeah. what it feels like to have covid yeah because yeah. like the first the first week after i tested positive wasn't that bad um you know like you know, five days into it, I was like, this is nothing. I, okay, yeah. I had a mild case. And then it really kicked in the second week. And it was like, for about five days in a row, I, I was just like, oh. I was like, I don't know if I've ever been this miserable yeah. in my life. But, um, but then, you know, coming out of that, the, 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 the sort of glass half full thing that I will say is that, um, I felt like, well, I've got some antibodies now. So, right. I mean, I'm still going to mask up and stay away from people, but that underlying fear has kind of gone away that I'm going to catch it at least for the next few months. From, right. you know, there's different, different information you see about how long the immunity lasts, but I was like, I've probably got a, a few months here where I, I don't have to worry. Yeah. And I don't think they'll even vaccinate you until 60 or 90 days after the end of your COVID experience. Yeah. So, yeah, so I've, yeah, that was in, so yeah, I'm coming up like maybe next month. I think I would be eligible. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. I'm glad you're here and I'm glad Thanks. we're able to talk for this. This is, uh, like I said, you've long been one of my favorite voices and songwriters and guitar people. So this is a cool experience for me. Thank, Thank you, you for so much, man. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, let's do this again when, when the next album comes out. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll probably 
if I have time to edit things tonight, I'll probably post it tomorrow. If not, I'll probably post it on the other side of the weekend and cool. help keep up uh, press for the album because it's cool. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. I will stop recording and then we are.